it's always a privilege uh, as a member of the church to be invited to share God's word with us today. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. If you've got the church Bibles, it's page 983, page 983 in the church Bible. And we're going to be reading uh, about 15 or so verses uh, in the church Bibles. Verse 13, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death, before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amen. Thank God for his word to us. Shall we pray? 
Father God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts we share be pleasing to you, and may your Holy Spirit take these words and use them for the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I've been asked to take one of the themes of the series that David embarked on earlier this year, and today it's a theme of community. And when I was thinking about this theme, my, my heart and my mind went to one phrase of Jesus that's in this passage, I will build my church. The observant among you will notice I'm wearing a tie today. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that I'm a non-conformist, <laughs> and I like to break the mold at times. Uh, there's another good reason that I'll share with you later on. And I know in these days we're more relaxed about what people wear. But there's a special reason for wearing this tie, which I'll come to a little bit later on. But I wonder, as we begin, if I could share a little bit of my story about how I became a Baptist minister, now retired for seven years. Um, but what happened that led me to that? I grew up in Harpen Memorial Baptist Church on the south side of Glasgow. And it was there after an evening service when Peter Donald was a preacher. There's an interesting connection here because David and Miranda's son, Josh, is married to Peter Donald's granddaughter, Bethany. After a sermon preached by Peter Donald, God really worked in my heart as a nine-year-old boy. And that night when my mother came to say goodnight to me and tuck me in, I spoke to her about following Jesus and becoming a Christian. And I can still remember that moment as she prayed with me and I prayed, inviting Jesus to come into my life to forgive my sins and to take me as his child, his follower. And I can still remember that sense of peace and assurance that came to me as a nine-year-old boy. Later I would recognize that was the Holy Spirit at work, bringing the assurance that I was God's child and that I had been accepted by grace into God's family. A move of house some year, well, not, not terribly long after that, meant that we couldn't realistically go to Harper Memorial Baptist Church. So we started attending a local Brethren Assembly where I was baptized at the age of 14. And I can still remember that night as well. Later on, a few years later, I became rather disenchanted with some aspects of that Brethren Assembly and I moved to a local church of Scotland where I became a deacon and was very involved in the youth group there. And it was in a service in that church one night that the old session clerk, Ben Johnson, leaned over, sitting behind me, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, John, I thought you should know that I think God is calling you to the ministry. And at that point, I thought, what does he know, that old fool? That was what I was thinking. But I could never forget what Ben said. And sure enough, as days followed and weeks and months, that conviction grew in my heart. But for me, I knew it could never be ministry in the Church of Scotland. Two main reasons for that. One was the issue of baptism. 
Um, I'd grown up in a Baptist church, so I'd learned that baptism and faith in New Testament were linked so closely together. And I could never be involved in baptizing infants. I just couldn't see that in the Bible. Still can't see it in the Bible. If you, you can, then give me your gracious attention uh, as we share the, this today. But I knew for that reason I could never be a Church of Scotland minister. I could never baptize infants. Because I believed, and as I still do now, that baptism should follow personal faith in Jesus and be a sign and declaration of that, that faith. But there was another reason too. I'd had enough understanding about the, the Baptist idea of church to realize it was very different from a Presbyterian understanding of church. And that's partly what I want to, to come to this morning. But let me go back to Ben Johnson, the old session clerk. I went to, to see Ben and tell him when I was going to apply for, for Baptist ministry that that was the course I was taking. And to give him credit, he was delighted. He wasn't narrow-minded denominationally. He simply said, John, I'm so pleased and I will be praying for you. And I'm grateful to God for Ben and for what he said that triggered something in me. It led to Bible College in Glasgow at the Bible Training Institute where I met Rosemary. And it led on to the Baptist College and then to the beginning of Baptist ministry in 1974, long before some of you were born. Shettleson, Leslie, Bridge of Dawn, and then for the last eight years part of the national team of the, the Baptist Union of Scotland. That's the other reason I'm, I'm wearing this tie today. Um, let me just put first slide up. Here are the words that we're thinking about today. I will build my church, said Jesus. And here's the first image that I want to think about with you. It's actually the symbol of the Baptist Union of Scotland. In 1969, the Baptist Union celebrated its centenary, 100 years. And the, Rev the late Reverend Peter Barber was the president that year. And he preached a, a marvelous message on Jesus Christ, the only hope. And this symbol was developed at that point to symbolize our life together and the centrality of Jesus in our life as the people of God, gathered together as Baptist churches. And incidentally, when we talk about the Baptist Union of Scotland, we're not talking about a denomination, but we're talking about a family of churches, a fellowship, a group of people who are linked together around Scotland, over 160 churches in different parts of Scotland. There is a national team, but they have no control over what happens in individual churches, but they're there to serve and support the life of the individual churches. And I felt, if I'm going to be a minister, this is what I want to be part of. And if you look at my tie, the colors are the same as the colors on the symbol up there, blue, white, and gold. There are three aspects in that symbol. One is the cross right at the center. Jesus is at the center of our faith. A second is the shield 
the image of the shield that the cross is embedded in, the shield of faith. And the third is the crown that sits on top, the crown that belongs to Christ Jesus alone. And believe it or not, this is the tartan of the Baptist Union of Scotland. You can actually get that tartan, it's registered. And uh, this was brought out uh, some years ago uh, to commemorate what God had been doing. And it links me into the first thing I want to say about these words of Jesus. I will build my church. And this idea of being community. There are four things that I want to try and emphasize this morning about these words of Jesus. He said, in response to Peter's confession of Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And the word he used for church was the word ecclesia, from which we get ecclesial and all the derivatives. And it simply means people who are called out to belong. In the Old Testament times, the ecclesia of God was the congregation of God's people that met together. It became used in New Testament times for a gathering of people in a community when they had to discuss or decide on issues affecting the community. Jesus uses it to emphasize that he's going to build his church and it will consist of people that he has called out to belong to him and to serve him in the world today. So the first thing that I want to say about this community is that it's centered on Jesus Christ. The community of the church is a Christ-centered community. If people who are complete strangers come into this church or any church, the impression they should leave with, if they know nothing at all about Christianity or about God or about the Bible, the impression they should leave with is that someone was there as these people gathered. Something was different about that gathering that makes it distinct from any other kind of gathering. And what is it that makes it distinct? It's the presence of Jesus by his Spirit. I love the passage in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about an unbeliever coming into the gathering of Christians and falling down on his or her face and saying, God is here among you. Brothers and sisters, we're called to be a community that's centered on Jesus and the impression we should be praying and hoping that we will give to anyone who comes into contact with us is that they've met somehow with the living God. Graham Kenrick once wrote a beautiful hymn, May the fragrance of Jesus fill this place. You know what it's like if you pass a bakery early in the morning when the bread is being baked and you don't want to, to go too fast as you pass it because of that aroma, that beautiful smell 
or a, a coffee shop where coffee is being ground and you want to stand there and just absorb it. So in the same way, Graham Kendrick says, as the community, as the church of Jesus, if we seek his presence and we acknowledge him and we long to meet with him, the fragrance of his presence is something that's caught and captured and that goes with us. I will build my church, says Jesus. It's my church. It's not your church. You might belong to a group of his people and that's part of his church. But Jesus says, I will build my church. And he says the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. The community that he builds is lasting and it's everlasting. We need to hear that and affirm it today because we live in a day and age when many people are predicting the demise of the Christian church. Okay, there are many churches that are closing, many that have uh, gone out of existence. There are many challenges in a secular and godless society that we face. There is growing opposition, I believe, to Christian churches and to Christians. It's not going to be easy to be a follower of Jesus in the future. It wasn't easy in those days either. But Jesus said, I will build my church. And he's still doing that. We may look to the Western world and think of the godless secular culture that's being developed and wring our hands in horror and sorrow as we see what's happening. But look across the world. And it's a very different picture. Jesus is doing what he said he would. Listen to these words again. I will build my church and the gates of hell, of Hades, will not overcome it. Will not overcome it. And it's Jesus who says this. We need to be a community keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. The community of the church is a Christ-centered community. The second thing that I want to say is this. The community of the church is a confessing community. Um, look at, at verse 18 again. Jesus says, sorry, um, verse 16. When Jesus invites his followers to reflect on who he is and what people are saying about him, he does this in the area of Caesarea Philippi. That was a Gentile area in the north of Israel. And it was renowned for pagan worship that took place there. In the Old Testament, the false god Baal was worshipped there. Later on, the Greek god Pan was worshipped there. And then in Jesus' day, there were shrines to Caesar as he was honoured and revered and sometimes deified by the people. And it's there that Jesus says, who do people say I am? Some replied, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. What about you, he said? Who do you say I am? And whenever Jesus asked his disciples as a group a question like that, you know who would answer? <laughs> Simon Peter. He was always the first jumping in there. Sometimes 
putting his foot in it, but sometimes sparked by revelation. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the first time in Matthew's Gospel that someone actually speaks to Jesus about him being the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Matthew has identified Jesus in first chapter as the Christ, but it's the first time someone actually says it directly to Jesus. And Jesus' response must have made Peter feel ten feet tall. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Peter, you've really heard from God. Isn't that great? God has revealed something to you. And then Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church. The community that he builds is a confessing community. Let me show you a picture. Um, it's from Germany in around about 1934. At the time when the Nazis were coming to power in Germany, Sadly, the state church in Germany was being sucked into the Nazi ideology and was beginning to validate it and give it a kind of theological confirmation. And a group of leaders in the church uh, gathered together to form what they called the Confessing Church. They stood out against the trend that they saw was happening. Many of them would suffer terribly for it. One of the most notable of these people was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, oops, I thought you know, this would give you a wee red dot, but oh, there it is. It's going and disappearing. His second row from the back on the left-hand side. His writings are fairly well known. And he became one of the leaders in this confessing church. A group of people who said, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. We will be good servants in our country. We will be patriots. But if there's ever a conflict between our obedience to God and our obedience to the state, Obedience to God wins out every time. And many of the people that you see in that picture would be uh, executed because of the stance that they took, standing against the trend. Why? Because they were a community that confessed Jesus as Lord. Now that actually resonates with the, the very beginnings of Baptist churches in this country and on the continent. Um, one of the things that characterized these early Baptist churches was their separation from the state church. They said, we owe allegiance to Jesus Christ and him alone. We will be good citizens of the state, but we will not be in the pocket of the state. We will always be separate we will seek to live according to the New Testament. We will practice what we believe it teaches. We will plead for freedom of worship to do that. And again, many of them were persecuted. 
if you ever go to Zurich, um, have a walk down near the lake, Zurich Sea, and you'll find some plaques there commemorating Baptist Christians who were martyred because of their beliefs and their practices. Some of their opponents said they want total immersion. That's what they believe is the mode of baptism. All right, we'll give them total immersion. And quite literally, many of them were taken in rowing boats out into the middle of Lake Zurich Sea. They had stones tied round them and they were thrown overboard. Total immersion. Drowning. Because they dared to confess. They dared to say, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to no one else. And we must give allegiance to him. When people are baptized, as often usually happens now down at uh, uh, the, the loch, not far from here. When they're baptized, they're saying Jesus is Lord. They're confessing him as Lord. And Jesus says when that happens, they become part of, of this family of God. They're baptized, not only into Christ, but into his church, into the body that he has on earth today. So when Jesus said, I will build my church, he talked about a community that centered on him, all of its life focused on him. He talked about a community that was confessing him daily and regularly as Lord. He also talked about a community that was committed to follow him. Now, if I asked you today, what, what image of the church would you use to uh, convey its essential meaning? There are about 60 plus descriptions of the church given in the New Testament. This ecclesia that Jesus is building. Um, one of the recent ones I've come across, I think, echoes something of what the New Testament says. And it's this image that's on the screen now. The image of a tented city, of a city of refugees. I think this was one of the camps at Calais in France. Now, why do I use that as an image of the church? Hebrews talks about us being strangers and sojourners while we're here on earth. Philippians, Paul says, you're citizens of heaven. So wherever you come from, that's not your true belonging. That's not your true identity. Instead, you're citizens of heaven. You belong elsewhere. Um, I came across this quotation recently, which I thought was uh, it's where I got this idea of, of this picture of the Christian church. A community committed to follow Jesus. It means we're on the road. It means we've not found our home yet. The city of God, says this writer, as tent city, speaks to the vulnerability and risk of the life of faith. If we want a snapshot of what the Christian life looks like, don't pay attention to the malls and the mega church stadiums, but pay attention to the tented cities of refugees, followers of Jesus. Imagine that. No permanent home here because we're looking for a homeland, 
Our homeland is with God. We're on a journey. We're not there yet, but we're on a journey. And one day, when we arrive there, we'll know this really is home. Meanwhile, Jesus wants us to be committed to follow him. And incidentally, with all the discussion that's going on about Gary Lineker and about the issues of what he said about refugees, we ought to be interested in what happens to refugees because we are refugees ourselves. Nothing you have, nothing you are in this earth is permanent. It's all fleeting. It's all temporary. It will one day be gone. And when you die, what will you leave behind? Everything. Everything. You won't take anything with you except who you've become in Christ Jesus. So Jesus says, I will build my church. And you notice the hard statement he made to Peter. It's after Peter's confession that Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die. He's got to do this. If his mission is to be fulfilled, he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter, again, the spokesperson says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turns and gives him the sharpest rebuke that you could ever give to anyone. Get behind me, Satan. He recognizes in Peter the voice of the enemy that will stop him or try and stop him going to the cross and fulfilling what he knows he must do. And Jesus goes on to say, if anyone wants to come after me, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. If you do, you might lose your life, but you'll actually gain it. And what does it profit a man, he says, if you gain the whole world and you lose your own soul? So this community, this church that Jesus is building, is a community committed to follow him. I've, over the years, used different discipleship programs, and they've all had their value and benefit. But I've more and more become convinced that the whole of the Christian life is a discipleship course. Because if we're not following Jesus, who are we following? And we need to learn to follow him and to help each other to follow him. Hence the emphasis on small groups and home groups so that we see the reality of Christ in our homes, helping each other, praying for each other, supporting each other. Because none of us are called to this alone. We're part of a community that's moving to a goal. And we might have our own wee tents, but we're all linked together. And we need to hold on to that. And we need to say we're committed to following Jesus. Nothing matters so much as following him. So what does that mean in your daily life? This time tomorrow, where will you be? What will you be doing? I love the story about the man who said, when someone asked him, um, what do you do? He said, I'm a follower of Jesus. And for me, that's mainly worked out in being a doctor and working in a hospital day by day. So when someone says to you, what do you do? 
Try that response. I'm a follower of Jesus. That's my duty and purpose. And where that's worked out will vary for every one of us. But the community he's building is a community that's committed to follow him. This is the, if you like, the, the main time when community is together. But when we're dispersed, we're still the same community. And Jesus wants us to be as committed there as we have been while we're here. And our worship doesn't end when we leave this place. In a sense, it's just beginning. Because all of life is to be worship offered to him. Then the last thing that I want to say about this community that Jesus is building is that it's a covenanted community. I love this symbol. You can get lots of uh, variations of it. This idea of people actually hanging on to each other and holding, gripping each other tightly because we, we belong together. The early Baptist uh, Christians really majored on this sense of being covenanted together. Through Jesus, we enter a new covenant relationship with God and we receive all the blessings that come to us because there is a new covenant. And Jesus spoke about that new covenant at the Last Supper, the night before his death, when he took bread and wine and gave them to his followers and he said, this is the new covenant that I'm making with you. I wonder if they looked around the room what they thought about the people who were around that table with them. Have a wee look around the room just now at the people who are here. <laughs> Sometimes we say it's rude to stare, but just have a wee look. Would you have chosen all these people to be your friends? Would you have chosen them and wanted them? How did the followers of Jesus feel when Jesus called Matthew as a tax collector? Any tax inspectors here today? No, don't put your hand up. <laughs> How would they feel when Jesus welcomed Simon the terrorist, the zealot, into their group? How would they feel about James and John, the sons of thunder, being there when they wanted the best places in the kingdom, one at your right, one at your left hand, or so their mother said, <laughs> I want this for my boys. They didn't choose each other. Nor have we chosen each other. But Jesus says, I will build my church. And he calls people. And part of the challenge and part of the joy is being bound together and bound to one another in love because we belong to Jesus. Um, I sometimes think about the spoke of a bicycle, uh, the wheel of a bicycle, rather. And you know, all the, the different spokes come into the center. And Jesus is at the center, and we are all at the perimeter, and we hear his call, and we come into him. And you know what happens? The closer you come to Jesus, the closer you come to one another. And then you begin to see things about each other that are not so nice. Here's one other slide I want to put up. Don't worry about reading the, the words. 
This is a substructure that's there in the New Testament of instruction and exhortation to Christians. One another sayings. There's 59 up there. You can count them later if you want. There's 59. And that's the number that I found in the New Testament. These are all the instructions about our life together and how we are to live as a community belonging to Jesus, covenanted together. And we have a church covenant that we embrace when we come into membership here. That's what it's about. Membership's not about having your name on a list, but about saying, I want to be covenanted. I want to be part, as close a part as I can be of this part of Christ's body here on earth. And you notice they're all color-coded, incidentally, so where you find similar phrases in the New Testament, they've got the same color on the screen above. And the dominant color up there is a color that's kind of off-red. One-third of the 59 statements, the one-another statements, are about loving one another. Love one another. By this said Jesus, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is the community, I believe, of the church. Jesus calls us to be a community that's focused, centered on him, a community that's confessing him daily, a community that's committed to follow him together in his world, wherever that might be for us, supporting and exhorting and taking responsibility for each other. A community that's covenanted together to love each other and to do what Jesus leads us to do in our world today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose picture you saw earlier in the Confessing Church in Germany, said this, Christ builds the church. It's not us who build the church. He builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is on the way to destroying it. For he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. We must confess he builds. We must proclaim he builds. We must pray to him and he will build. We don't know his plan. We can't see whether he's building or pulling down. And sometimes, by human standards, we think these are times of collapse. They actually might be times of great construction and building. It may be the times that we see are great times for the church are when Jesus says there's something that needs to be done here. It's a great comfort which Jesus gives to his church. You confess, you preach, you bear witness to me, and I alone will build where it pleases me. Do not meddle in what is not your province. Do what is given to you and do it well and you will have done enough. Amen. Let's pray together. Build your church, Lord. Make us strong, Lord. Make us one, Lord, in your Son, in your body, in your kingdom, by your Spirit, and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.